marriage actually end up physically resembling each other. It's true. So this isn't, um, it's actually about how our faces look. So our faces begin to resemble each other. And it's not like our bone structures change or anything like that, but it is about how we age and how the lines and the wrinkles appear on our face that they actually kind of match each other. So this, um, this was scientifically documented by a study a while back. They took a group of married couples who'd been married for decades, and they took two sets of photographs of their faces. So one group of photographs uh, were of their faces when they were newlyweds, and then the other group was faces, their faces after they had been married for decades and decades. And then they asked random strangers to come and match up in each group they, to pair up the people that looked the most alike. And what they found is that in the newlywed group, there was absolutely no pattern, no correlation. They were just matching up random people. But in the group of the people who'd been married for decades, they were much more consistently matching up married couples. So even if there's no physical resemblance to begin with, by the time you've been married 40 years, there is. And what's even more striking is that the people who were ranked with the highest rates of resemblance, so the most people matching them up, they were the same couples that had reported the happiest marriages over those years. So what this study demonstrates is that, yes, married couples end up looking like each other, and the happiest married couples end up looking the most like each other. So if you're here and you're married, and especially if you're happily married, you should take a good look at your spouse's face because this is maybe your future. So, Greg, I love your face. Um, But there's a couple of explanations for this. So one has to do with the fact that married couples tend to share similar life experiences. So if you go through a decade of pain, that's going to show up differently on your face and the lines, you know, your furrowed brow and your frown lines. Then if you go through a decade of joy, that's going to show up in the smile lines and the creases by your eyes. But the other thing that is even more significant is that apparently in our day-to-day interactions with our spouse, as we're talking, as we're sharing life, even subconsciously, we are mimicking their facial expressions constantly. I didn't know this. So apparently when Greg is sharing something concerning and his brow is kind of furrowed, that even if I'm not aware of it, I'm furrowing my brow as well. Or if he's sharing something happy, that even if I'm not outright smiling, the muscles around my mouth are tensing. And so what this means is that after decades and decades, not only have you shared the same life experiences, you've actually shared hundreds of thousands of similar facial expressions, and that carves out a very similar pattern on your face. So what I love about this idea, it's kind of this romantic idea to me, that when you look at someone's face, you can tell who they love. That when I'm 90 years old, you'll look at my face and you'll be able to tell I spent my life loving Greg and not somebody else. And that if I had spent my life loving somebody else, I would actually look different. That there's something about loving Greg that has made its mark on me and changed me. That is a beautiful and romantic idea that I just love. And today I want to explore a biblical idea that is similar And this is the idea that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. So on a material level, kind of a worldly, earthly level, we might understand this. How many of us have ever tried to emulate or be like someone that we admire or that we look up to or that we worship? 
John has. Awesome. Right? You, you look at someone and you're like, oh, I want to be like them. But on a spiritual level, this idea goes even deeper. We become like what we worship. So Genesis tells us that human beings were designed to be image bearers of God. The core to what it means to be human is a calling to reflect the very nature and glory of God. It's almost like we were made out of spiritually reflective material. And that we, when we are near God, we reflect what he is like. And that's what we're talking about in this series. That as we worship God, as we are in love with God, his qualities begin to be reflected in us. The spirit produces fruit in us that look like him. We become like what we worship. But on the flip side of that, when we worship other things, when we worship something that is not God, because we're made of spiritually reflective material and because we become like what we worship, we actually begin to look like something else. So the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament talks about the Israelites' tendency to worship other gods. And he has this line that says, um, the Israelites consecrated themselves to a shameful idol and they became as vile as the thing they loved. We become like what we worship. You look at us and you can tell who we love. So when that's God, when we love God, we begin to look like him. When that's something else, for the Israelites, it was these other gods. For us, I think it's other things. We begin to look like something else. There's a different kind of fruit that's produced in us. So I want you to take that idea we become like what we worship. And I want you to kind of like put it in your pocket. So just literally just put it away because we're going to take it out and apply it in just a few minutes. We're going to need it later. So put it in your pocket. We become like what we worship. But uh, what I want to do right now is explore this fruit of, the, fruit of the spirit of faithfulness that we're talking about this morning. So I want to talk about faithfulness. So just a few things that I want us to know about faithfulness. The first thing is that faithfulness is about love. Faithfulness is about love. So in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew words that are most often translated as faithfulness in English are emet and amuna. And these words are most often in scripture paired with the word hesed, which is the word for God's steadfast or covenant love. So for example, in Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love, has said, endures forever and his faithfulness, imuna, to all generations. So these ideas go together like peanut butter and jelly, okay? Has said and imuna, love and faithfulness. God's faithfulness in scripture is intimately connected with his love. We cannot understand those ideas apart from one another. How does God love? God loves with a faithful, steadfast, covenant love. Faithfulness is about love. So to get even more specific, what does steadfast, faithfulness, covenant love look like? It looks like the ability to make and keep promises to one another. So this is the second thing about faithfulness that I want us to reflect on. Faithfulness involves the ability to make and keep promises. So some Old Testament scholars have pointed out that there is no exact Hebrew equivalent for the word promise. The words that are most often translated as promise um, are, 
closer to the words for speak or word. And what this reveals is that in the ancient Hebrew mindset, when someone, whether a human or God, says they will do something, that's as good as a promise. Their word is good. I will do something. I don't need to say, I promise that I will do this. I will do something. And so for us, what that means is that the fruit of the spirit of faithfulness, to exercise faithfulness in our lives, it's not just about the giant, obvious promises of our lives. It's not just about our marriage vows. It's not just about our baptismal vows. It's about the daily relational interactions of our lives. So we can exercise faithfulness in small ways, in small relational dynamics. This looks like keeping our commitments, following through on what we say we're going to do. We accept in planning center, we show up and serve. (laughs) Um, We follow through on what we say we're going to do. For me, this looks like the day that, you know, my kids learned how to tell time and I realized I was in trouble because I say things like this all the time. Oh, just five more minutes, buddy. Just five more minutes, and then I'll help you with that Lego thing, right? So before they could tell time, I could get away with five minutes actually meaning 20 minutes. Now I get called out for that. And what they're saying, though they're not saying it with these words, is, Mom, you're not being faithful to what you said you were going to do. We do this all the time. Just five more minutes, buddy. I'm going to do this. I will be there. I will be there at this time. And we don't follow through. So we can exercise faithfulness in the small relational dynamics of our lives. And then obviously, we can exercise faithfulness in the larger relational dynamics of our lives. So we can love our friends through thick and thin. We can refuse to give up on people even when they let us down. When they hurt us, when they do dumb things, we can say, I am going to be a faithful friend and I am not going to let this person go. It's one way to exercise faithfulness. We can commit ourselves to one another in Christian community. We can resist the urge to be spectators or consumers here at church. We can say, I'm going to allow you into my life and I'm going to get into your life. We can commit ourselves to one another. And then, yes, obviously, when we think about faithfulness, one of the things that obviously comes to mind is we think about marriage. We can be faithful in marriage. One of the things that Greg and I vowed to each other, and I love this language from some of the traditional marriage vows, is that we would forsake all others and be faithful only to one another. And so a lot of times when we think about faithfulness in marriage, we think about not cheating on each other, but that is not the only thing we promised. Why, why is that what we think it means to be faithful is just not to cheat on them? I actually promised to love him, to honor him, to cherish him, and to respect him. And so faithfulness means being true to those promises as well, not just check the box, I haven't had an affair. So faithfulness in marriage, are we true to the things that we promised one another? Faithfulness is about making and keeping promises, big and small, and being true to our word. And this is what God is like. The only way that we understand faithfulness, or the best way to understand faithfulness, is to look at the way that God loves us. God loves humanity with a faithful, steadfast, covenant love. God makes and keeps his promises to us. So if you look throughout the pages of scripture over and over again, you see God making promises to humanity. He makes promises to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham and Sarah, to Moses and Israel, to David, to the church. God is a God who makes 
promises. He promises Eve that her descendant would one day defeat evil. He promised Abraham that through him and his offspring, all nations would be blessed. He promised that Israel would be a light to the nations and that he would use them to redeem the world. And he promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. He makes promises. And then he keeps promises. So these promises end up being very costly for God to keep. In order to keep these promises, this is what ends up leading Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross to keep God's promises to humanity. God makes costly promises to us, and he's willing to make costly promises that cause him pain to keep because he loves us. This is what faithful love looks like. And humans, we're not always like that. We know that about ourselves. We actually don't like to make costly promises. We, we're hesitant to promise things that are going to cause us pain. So Greg and I were at a wedding a long time ago, and um, these were some family friends, and they had clearly uh, written their own vows and probably not shared them with each other before the wedding day. And so the, the groom went first, and as I recall, it was a very traditional kind of vow, and he promised, you know, to love and honor and cherish her and be faithful to her as long as they both shall live. And then it was the bride's turn, and she read a beautiful thing about loving, honoring, cherishing, etc., etc., as long as we both are together. And it was like the cosmic record player with the beautiful wedding music just scratched for Greg and me, nobody else seemed to notice, but Greg and I looked at each other like, what was that? Did you hear that? He made a very costly promise, and hers was a little bit easier to keep. I promise to love you as long as we are together. Wow. Lucky for us, God's promises are more like the groom's. He promises things to us that he knows will be costly for him to keep. That is what faithful, steadfast, covenant love looks like. He loves us that much. <clears throat> so faithfulness is about love. Faithfulness is about making and keeping promises even when it hurts. And faithfulness, the third thing, is that it only requires one party. Only requires one party. So there's some things in relationships that require two parties. So entering into a covenant, getting married, um, pursuing reconciliation, re repairing a damaged relationship. These things require both parties to participate or they don't happen. Faithfulness is not like that. You can exercise faithfulness to someone who doesn't return it, who doesn't exercise faithfulness in return. And again, uh, this is what God's faithfulness to us is like. And God's faithfulness is so much like this, this kind of unilateral commitment, that there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to this idea that God is faithful to humanity when humanity is not faithful to him, and that is the book of Hosea. So I want to take a quick dive into the book of Hosea because I think it's really relevant for us today. So I want to walk us through um, some things about Hosea. So the first commandment given by God uh, to Israel when he made a covenant, which was a promise to them at Mount Sinai, was you shall have no other gods before me. 
And there's 10 commandments, but Israel was really struggling with number one. Like, we couldn't even get past number one here. You shall have no other gods before me. So the years around when Hosea, this book, was written were really difficult for Israel. So they were facing a lot of internal um, turmoil in the northern kingdom. Their kings kept murdering each other, so that doesn't really uh, produce a stable, you know, political environment. And then externally, they're experiencing some threats. They're surrounded by other nations and powerful cultural forces that oppose their way of life. And so in the face of these difficulties, the temptation to assimilate to the surrounding culture is strong. So when you see that these powerful nations around you, these powerful uh, you know, people, they're worshiping a god named Baal, or actually several gods named Baals, the Baals, and they're doing pretty well for themselves, it's difficult not to get caught up in that, to get swept up in that. It's difficult to remember their identity as Yahweh's chosen people set apart to worship him alone. It's difficult to remember that. It's difficult not to get swept up in the worship of other things. And that sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? So our culture, I'm going to suggest, is full of Baals, these other gods. And they are not actual other gods with temples and religious rites and rituals. And yet... They are the things that the society around us is obsessed with. The things that the culture we live in worships and loves. The things that people, including us, worship, love, spend an incredible amount of energy. You would even equate it to religious energy on. And so I don't think it's that much of a stretch to associate some of these things, such as money, career, family, our children, parents, um, success, did I say that one? You know, these things in our culture that we worship, it's not that much of a stretch to equate them with the Baals of ancient Assyria, these other gods. These are the things that when we love them, they're not bad things, but the love and worship and obsession with these things can begin to look like other religions in our lives. The cult of success, the cult of money, the cult of the nuclear family. I mean, I could talk about each one of these things, but we are called to love God the most. And our heart gets swept up into the worship of other things. Um, so it's time, at times it's easy to forget our identity, to forget who we are. And so anyway, Israel develops a Baal-worshipping habit. So they love Yahweh, they worship Yahweh, but then they also love Baal and they worship him. And so God appoints Hosea to be his mouthpiece to confront Israel on their unfaithfulness. But here's the thing about Hosea. So God wants Hosea to understand this problem in his gut. And so what he does is he tells Hosea to go and marry this woman named Gomer who is described as a promiscuous woman. She's an unfaithful wife. And God tells Hosea, I want you to be faithful to her, even though she's not going to be faithful to you. So just as Israel has other gods, Gomer will have other lovers. And as Hosea is faithful to Gomer, he's going to understand in a visceral way God's faithfulness 
to Israel. Now I want to make a very important side note here. Hosea is not the book in the Bible where we go to get teaching on marriage or marriage advice or what a picture of a healthy relationship looks like. So if you come for pre-marriage counseling, we're not going to be opening up to Hosea, okay? This is a particular call, part of his prophetic ministry that God gives to Hosea for this particular time for, to be part of a larger purpose. And it's really important that we not read this as prescriptive for every relationship ever, okay? So I just needed to make that clear. Um, but I want to read a couple passages from Hosea to flesh this out for us because it's so good, okay? So Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> so that, I love that, uh, that wording, uh, the sacred raisin cakes. It's hard for me to even read that with a straight face. We got a picture of one up here. We got the sacred raisin muffin. So, um... Sacred raisin cakes are, I want to kind of explain what this means. So in the worship of other gods in the ancient Assyria, like you would go to worship Baal and you would bring a food offering and you would sacrifice, you know, offer this food to the gods and then you'd get to feast on the food that you brought. And apparently Baal really liked raisin cakes and apparently so did the Israelites. It's a little treat that they get from worshiping Baal. They get not power or fame or wealth, but they get muffins. They get these little goodies and they love them. But this is the thing, like what is the equivalent for us to raisin cakes? It's basically the little goodies or the treats that we get from loving other things and worshiping other things more than God. There's always something appealing about idolatry. And idolatry just means loving something else more than God. There's always something appealing to us, something alluring, something promising. What is it for you? So for example, hypothetically speaking, if you worship your image and you go to the temple of social media and you sacrifice your time there and you sacrifice sometimes your dignity there, what are the raisin cakes? It's those 250 likes that make you feel awesome about yourself and make you feel good about your idolatry, all right? Sacred raisin cakes, they're nothing special, but they make us feel good about worshiping something else. So for Israel, it was raisin cakes. What is it for you? So the book of Hosea, just to summarize the rest of Hosea. So to me, as I read Hosea this week, it seemed like it's God's stream of consciousness just kind of his inner thoughts about how am I going to respond to my unfaithful bride, Israel? What am I going to do? So there are times where there's long passages where he talks about destroying Israel. And then there's these other passages where the metaphor switches, like chapter 11. God remembers that Israel is his child, and he talks about fathering them and teaching them to walk. And this beautiful passage where he talks about lifting them up to his cheek like a little child. And so as you read Hosea, you begin to hear God's tender, steadfast love, his hesed, calls forth his faithfulness, his imuna. And so it is God's love that convinces God not to abandon her or forsake her, but to woo Israel back with his love. 
And so chapter two, he's kind of planning this. It kind of skips around chronologically. But chapter two, he says, I am now going to allure her. He's talking about Israel. And speak tenderly to her. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. So it is God's love and faithfulness, his hesed and his amuna, that is going to woo Israel back despite her unfaithfulness. And ultimately, it's the death of Jesus that is going to purchase all of humanity back forever. But in order for this relationship between humanity and God to work, we need to forsake our other loves. The names of the Baals, whatever they are. For Israel, it was literally Baal, but for us, it's other things. They need to be removed from our lips. We need to return to our first love, or this relationship is not going to work. So faithfulness. Faithfulness is about love. Faithfulness is about making and keeping promises. And faithfulness only requires one party, like Hosea and Gomer, like God and us. So now... Remember that idea that I asked you to put in your pocket? I want you to take that back out because we're going to need it here. So this is the idea that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. So when you look at us, can you tell who we love? Those of us in the room that claim, many of us, to love God, when you look at us and our love for this faithful God we should be able to see the fruit of the spirit of faithfulness reflected in our lives, right? If we are in love with this faithful God, we're made out of spiritually reflective material. It's part of our calling to reflect his image. You should see this fruit in our life. And to be honest, I do here at Sanctuary, I look around this room and I see friends who have been faithful to each other through thick and thin, I see people who are committed to one another for life. I don't know if you've ever said that to each other, friends, but I, I see friendships here that I know when you're old, you will still be friends. And I actually know stories of people who turned down job offers in other parts of the country to stay here because they felt like God was asking them to commit to Providence and to this community. I see that faithfulness in you. And yet, if we're honest and we take a good look at ourselves, we don't always reflect that fruit of the Spirit perfectly. So here's some other things that we also see in us. We see friendships that are broken over trivial things, over conflict, disagreements. We see infidelity in our marriages. And again, we think of that sometimes as like actual, like physical affairs. What about virtual infidelity? Emotional infidelity, we see that in our marriages. We see empty promises and a lack of follow-through. We see, at times, a consumeristic approach to community. I'm just not getting anything out of this. We see that in ourselves. We see extreme transience and loneliness and an inability to commit to one another. So here's what I want to suggest. Could it be, when we see those things, that those are like the lines on our faces, those are evidence that we're in love with someone else. When you look at our lives and the fruit that you see in our lives doesn't match up with the characteristics of God that we know, I think it's a fair question to say, is my heart in love with something else? Is there someone else? Who or what 
do I love more than God and that that is showing in my life. And so the very last thing that I want to do this morning is I actually want to take a stab at two of those things that I think impact our ability to reflect the fruit of faithfulness beautifully. So two other loves that I think our hearts are taken by that I think impact our ability to be faithful like God is faithful. So uh, these are powerful kind of false gods of our age. So the first one is the God of personal freedom. The God of personal freedom. So it shouldn't be too hard to see that this is a central value to our society, right? So this is one of the most powerful false gods, I would say, of American culture. Our nation was birthed out of a passion for the ideals of liberty, freedom, and independence. Those are not bad things, but when they become the thing that we worship, bad things happen. So personal freedom and autonomy, these have become so sacred to us, and you can tell because anytime anything threatens your personal freedom, it is immediately rejected. And you see that on both sides of the political spectrum, right? You see that from kind of the NRA supporters to Planned Parenthood supporters. On both sides, you see, don't tell me what to do. That is infringing on this sacred value of personal freedom. The goodies or the raisin cakes of the cult of personal freedom, I think, are things like self-determination, the ability to do it, to kind of determine my own destiny. Uh, flexibility and sort of a no-strings-attached lifestyle, nothing holding me back, I can do whatever I want, and the promise of personal happiness, that this is what's going to make us happy. But the way that the worship of personal freedom takes its toll on relationships is significant. We can begin to fear any kind of commitment or promise because we don't want to be forced to follow through on it. We don't want to be tied down to a promise. We don't want to be yeah, forced to do anything that we don't want to do. One of the liturgies of the cult of personal freedom that I think we hear in the culture and on our own lips is the phrase, I just want to keep my options open. And there's nothing like inherently wrong about that phrase. It's not always bad, but it can be used as a justification for not wanting to commit myself to something, for not wanting to make a promise. I just want to keep my options open. And the thing that we know about God is that God didn't keep his options open. At some point, God limited his choices and his options by committing himself to humanity forever. And so if God is like that, I think it's okay to sort of be a little skeptical when we hear that phrase coming off our lips. Again, it's not always wrong but I think we can afford to question it. Because over time, chronic commitment avoidance can lead to a toxic culture of independence and autonomy, and it can breed chronic loneliness and transience. Humans were designed for relationships. And so in community, this can be incredibly unhealthy for us if we're unwilling at some level to limit our options and commit to one another. We see evidence of this everywhere in our culture. So from the very trivial, like 
Nobody ever RSVPs for anything anymore. We all love that maybe button on Facebook, right? I just want to keep my options open. Oh, you got a party? That's great. Maybe I'll be there. I just want to keep my options open. So that's kind of a trivial thing. But more significantly, we see this impacting businesses. So apparently people are more hesitant than ever to sign contracts these days. And so businesses that used to operate on things like an annual membership fee, like a gym, they're forced to adjust their business model and offer things like monthly memberships or pay-as-you-go. It's impacting how people, um, how they commit even to the services that they purchase. Um, job hopping, this is apparently the new normal. So the average number of years someone stays in a job now is four. So I've been at Sanctuary just about two, and I still feel new. And by that logic, I'm halfway done. That's crazy. Four years. That's the average. Fewer people, we all know this, are getting married. They're getting married later. Uh, more people are living together long term and not wanting to take the plunge into a lifelong commitment. So if personal freedom and the ability to do whatever we want, if that becomes the thing that our heart loves the most and we worship that thing, we will see that our ability to keep promises, our ability to be faithful, that's going to plummet if we love and worship our personal freedom more than anything. We become like what we worship. So that's the first one, personal freedom. The second one is the false god of convenience. The false god of convenience. So we in our society value our time and our comfort so much that we've been, become obsessed as a society with the idea of convenience. We like things that are quick and easy and don't demand anything of us. They don't demand our time. They don't demand our energy. They don't demand our thought. We like things that are quick and easy and painless. So the goodies or the raisin cakes of this cult of convenience are things like our savings in terms of time and energy and the avoidance of pain and nuisance in our everyday lives. And on the surface of things, that's not bad, right? Convenience, this has improved our lives in a lot of ways. But when we worship convenience, when that is the thing that our heart loves the most, it can cause a toxic culture of disposability. A toxic culture of disposability. We love disposable things. Even though we know they're bad for the environment or they're bad for our health, they're bad for us, we love them because they're so convenient. So Greg and I, with our first child, Noah, we were adamant, passionate cloth diaper people. Noah wore a cloth diaper all the time except at daycare where they wouldn't do it. So we, you know, stooped to the level of disposable diapers. That was child number one. Child number two, we had about a 50% success rate with cloth in the first couple months and then we gave up completely. Because by then it's like we have two kids, we don't have time, and who likes to wash out poop in the toilet? I'd rather just throw that away. I don't want to do hard things that take my time when I can do something easy and just throw it away. Right? So we, um, our obsession with convenience leads to this aversion to doing hard things that take our time and energy and are painful or difficult. So the, um, the, another way that that kind of plays itself out in our culture is that we prefer to throw away, to toss broken things rather than to fix them. So a long time ago, repair shops would be everywhere. You take your toaster to get repaired. You take your watch to get repaired. I don't even know where I would go to get a normal everyday item repaired. We fix cars and computers in our house, and that's about it. You know, we toss other things that are broken that we can't fix ourselves. 
And here's the problem with all of this. So some of you are like, why is this a problem? This sounds great. Here's the problem. When we worship these things, subconsciously we can begin to apply these very patterns to relationships. Okay, so our preference to toss or replace broken things rather than fix them. Our preference for things that are easy and quick and don't demand anything of us. When we apply this obsession to our relationships, this is where we get hookup culture. This is where we get broken friendships that are just tossed aside even when they're mendable. Our obsession with convenience leads to an aversion to doing hard things that are painful or take our time. Now, I, am, I want another little caveat here. I'm not saying that every relationship is salvageable, every broken relationship is salvageable or healthy for us. And that's really important. There are some situations where parting ways or drawing a boundary is really important. So as you're thinking through your mind, if, if you're thinking about what does faithfulness in the face of abuse look like, for example, I am not talking about that. That's a completely different conversation. But what I am talking about is I have seen friendships tossed aside over trivial conflict, political disagreements, things that the friendship is broken, but it's not dead. It's mendable. If convenience becomes our God, the, the ability to exercise faithfulness decreases. But what we know about Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we know that Jesus went to the cross, which was extremely inconvenient for him. It was extremely painful for him, and he did that to mend and to salvage our broken relationship with him that we broke. That's the kind of faithfulness that God has, and that flies in the face of our culture that says, I just toss this relationship when it's broken. I don't do anything hard to mend it. We become like what we worship. So what do we do? And worship team, you guys can come on up. What do we do when we recognize that our hearts love something else, that we are in love with something else more than we are in love with God? What do we do when we see this toxic fruit reflected in our lives instead of the fruit of faithfulness? What do we do? Two things. First of all, we need to return to our first love. The, in the Hosea passage, I think it's really um, profound that God says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. It's God who will remove these names of the other things that we love from our lips. But we need to repent. That word just means to turn. We need to turn to change our minds, and then that will be followed by a change of behavior. We need to turn and return to our first love. And so if one of those things kind of pinged for you, like, oh, yeah, like, I, I feel that, I, w I encourage you, tell the Lord about it. Repent. Just change your mind. Put a step of faith forward to come back to your first love. Say, God, I want to worship you alone, but I am struggling. And then ask him to remove the names of the Baals, those other things from your lips with his love, not with his judgment, not with his wrath, but with his love. God's wrath for Israel is there. It's righteous, but it's his love that woos her back. So spend time with your first love, with God. Meditate on him. Praise him for the qualities that you want to see in your life. 
focus on, wow, God, you are so beautiful. I want to be like that and ask him for help. So that's step number one. Return to your first love. Get time with him and reflect on those qualities. And then second, um, in Galatians 5, right at the end of that um, Fruit of the Spirit passage, it says in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's the Spirit who bears this fruit in our lives. The Spirit makes it grow. But it's not like we do nothing. I was talking about this with Greg, and he had a great analogy. It's like the Spirit leads the dance, but we don't just stand there limp. Right? We, we get to keep in step with the Spirit. That's an active verb. We get to follow the Spirit. We get to dance. We get to participate. And so what that means and what we've been talking about through this series are the specific ways, the practices that we can do to cultivate this fruit in our life. The Spirit does the work, but we keep in step by making specific choices about how we will live and what practices will cultivate the things that we want to see. And so I just have three practical things to try this week if anything was kind of popping for you or pinging for you. They're going to go up on the screen, but these are just some ideas. Number one, notice your tendency to say maybe to things. Sometimes you have to say maybe. I'm not saying it's always wrong to say maybe, but if there's a a situation where you could say yes or no, but you'd prefer to say maybe for whatever reason, examine that. Experiment with saying yes and with saying no. See what that feels like. Second, um, I think it would be wise for us to ask God if there's anything or anyone in our life that he wants us to commit to. Is it a person, a place, a calling, a dream, a project? And examine, why do I feel hesitant to say yes to this, to commit to this? What's my hesitation about? So that's the second thing. And then third, and I think this is the one that's been most heavy on my heart or most just burning in me as I've been preparing this sermon, is I would love for us to take an inventory of our relationships and to ask God, is there a broken friendship that is mendable that I have tossed aside? And what would you have me do? So just ask God, is there something that I have in my desire for convenience tossed aside? And um, if you need help, practical help pursuing reconciliation, if you need help knowing what's the first step when I haven't talked to this person in a decade, what's the first step when I'm still so hurt? What's the first step if I've done something that has damaged this friendship? Please come talk to me. This is something I'm passionate about. Love to talk to you about reconciliation. So as we close, we are going to come to the table and that is the, that's such an appropriate place to come right now. At the table, we remember that God is a God who keeps his promises to us at great cost to himself. At the communion table, we remember that the cross is the ultimate sign of God's love and faithfulness, his hesed and his emuna. He loves us, his fickle unfaithful bride with that kind of love such that he poured himself out broke himself open for us and so as you come to dip the bread in the cup remember Christ's body broken for you Christ's blood poured out for you because he loves you and because he's faithful to his promises God is faithful 
His faithful covenant love endures forever. We'll form two lines um, down the center aisle. If you'd like to receive prayer this morning, if something is coming up for you, there will be prayer um, ministers over here on this side. And so if you'd like to receive prayer, I want to encourage you to line up in this line. But let's pray and then let's come to the table. Oh, and we are doing communion in the back as well. So if you are behind the sound booth, you're going to go to the back. All right, let's pray. Faithful God, we can't even begin to comprehend your love for us. We try and we fall short. But Lord, um, this table is the best picture that we have. It's the place where you kept your promise and where you poured yourself out. You endured great pain for your love for us. And so God, as we come to the table, would you remind us of your love? And God, would we be people who reflect that love in our faithfulness to one another? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as you feel led.